Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place like Texas. You've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I've got the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Chris Dietz, He is a lecturer at the Centre for Law and Social Justice at the University of Leeds, and his book today is Self-Declaration in the Legal Recognition of Gender. It was published by Routledge in 2023. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me, and yeah, um, pleasure to be on the podcast. Oh, it's great to have you here. So just to get us started, can you please tell me just a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Self-Declaration in the Legal Recognition of Gender? Yeah, okay. So, well, it has been quite a long um, process in terms of me looking into how sex and gender have been regulated in law. It actually dated back to my undergraduate um, dissertation. Um, And actually, the idea came from even before that. I had been involved in some um, feminist activism whilst I was on my undergrad. And then I did an Erasmus exchange year um, in Sweden. And there I met a couple of trans people from different countries who were both having similar problems in terms of changing their legal gender uh, in their home countries. And um, one of my, one of the intentions of my year abroad was to work out what I wanted to do my undergrad dissertation on. And I thought, oh, it'll be interesting to see uh, if that's the case for trans people in the UK. At that point, I actually didn't know any trans people in the UK, although that changed quite quickly uh, when I got back. Um, and yeah, I looked into it and we had this uh, this law in 2004, the Gender Recognition Act, which was in many ways um, world leading at the time, I suppose you could say, but with lots of caveats. So, And there'd just been a load of literature <laughs> published just before um, I was um, conducting this research. And yeah, I applied for a PhD to look into that actually further. And uh, it was only when I actually started the PhD and um, the law changed uh, in Denmark to have a a much more um, seemingly progressive form of recognition uh, that I I considered uh, going there and making self-declaration of gender, which at the time of my undergrad wasn't, was a sort of pipe dream, uh, actual case study. uh, 
And it's super fascinating. And I just want to pick up on something you just mentioned about the changes in law. So you talked about the introduction of the Gender Recognition Act in the UK and then all these legislative changes that happened in Denmark, um, which was the subject of your PhD. So, and I think this is a really interesting sort of thing to draw out. So can you tell me how the regulation of gender actually changed over the period of your writing the book? Yeah, so, uh, well, sort of prior to when I got interested in this subject, you know, there was there's a case where it was the case where, you know, a lot of countries, including the UK, offered pretty much no uh, form of um, gender recognition or, or, or you could consider that the right to change your legal gender from the one that you were assigned at birth. Um and yeah, in the UK, that was that was the case before the Gender Recognition Act. Actually, in a lot of uh, continental European countries, including Denmark, it had been possible to change your legal gender, um, provided uh, you'd undergone you could prove that you'd undergone what they would consider like a full uh, transition, and that was um, with hormones and surgery. Um, so restricted to which only ever is available to a minority globally, a, a tiny minority of, of trans people. So yeah, the, you know, in some ways they were ahead of, of the UK. Then the UK skipped ahead of them by um, making this psychiatric uh, diagnosis of gender dysphoria uh, the main uh, condition for getting legal gender recognition, um, which didn't in in law require trans people to have undergone any surgery or taken any hormonal treatments. Um, yeah, like I say, that was seen as very progressive at the time. And there was a rich, small but rich body of literature in the UK from academics like um, Alex Sharp, um, Sharon Cowan, Sally Hines, um, going into this, um, the, this, this law and what was the what were the ways in which it was uh, progressive and what were the ways in which it was, uh, you know, ultimately conservative. Uh, and then when, yeah, the law changed in the, in Denmark to um, uh, basically um, allow gender recognition purely on the basis of one's own um, self-declaration. Uh, that is to say where you tell the state, you know, my legal gender is actually uh, male when it had previously been recorded as female or vice versa. And the state basically accepts that without any further gatekeeping. When that happened in, in 2014, uh, it was the first European state to um, enact that that model of, of gender recognition after Argentina had previously done so. And yeah, I suppose my thought was to, to sort of build a body of literature um, around that change, um, much like there'd been a body of literature around the Gender Recognition Act. And it does, um, you know, sort of thinking about the history you've just taught through this idea that gender could be self-declared does almost seem quite radical, you know, uh, overcoming sort of so much sort of legislative history and entrenched ideas about gender and trans people. I wonder if you can comment a little bit on, you know, how progressive the law was and how it sort of turned out to be since um, 2014. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the first point, on on the, mm. the sort of radical shift, it it is in a way. I mean, I always specify self declaration, and the reason I chose that for the title of my book rather than self identification, which some people say, yeah. or, or self ID for short, is that everybody's entitled in some way to self identify their their gender. Um, but for for me, that carries a 
uh, assumption or uh, there's an undertone there that you would be able to self-identify on a personal level amongst a range of options. So potentially non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer and agender. There's lots of different options uh, there. Um, Or and that you would be able to do so on a personal level. I specify self-declaration because uh, in Denmark, the, the options were male or female, so it's a binary choice. And it's not enough to simply identify as those things. You have to tell the state if you want your papers um, to um, match up with with this new self-identification. So there's a t- sort of two-stage process, the self-identification, then the self-declaration that comes after. And the fact that you have to do a declaration I was inspired a lot by Emily Grabham's work on, um, and also um, Dean Spade in the US talking about the bureaucracy of, of declaring gender and um, how that sort of fits with um, certain types of um, nation building. And there's, there's ways in which this the engagement with the state it already provides confines and people's people's sort of gendered expression uh, and. So yeah, so I think it is. It is a. It was a radical change, and uh, certainly um, a lot of trans people, non-binary people included, in the UK would prefer the UK to go um, in the direction that Denmark went, or a lot of other countries. We've seen the Republic of Ireland, out of our near neighbours, have gone down this route, and Scotland have attempted to, although <laughs> um, that's been blocked um, by the UK government, um, and that sort of rumbling on uh, that issue. Uh, the idea of it taking away the gatekeepers has massive appeal for people who struggle um, to gain the approval of medical um, and medical legal uh, gatekeepers to diagnoses like gender dysphoria. Yeah, that's interesting because notwithstanding the sort of um, the element of the legislation that is progressive, there is still this, as you sort of mentioned, this um, bureau- bureaucracy and engagement with the state that trans people who do um, self-declare still have to overcome that people who are not trans don't have to overcome that sort of um yeah it's it's interesting but it does seem this additional hurdle to be recognized um for who you are so I want to sort of go back a little bit to the start of the book and you open the book and you write this book is about gender it's also about sex to the extent the two can be distinguished from one another so just to sort of contextualize the book a little more, can you provide some sort of context in terms of the way that gender and sex are related and how they can be distinguished, especially for the purposes of the book? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this is, in some ways, this this distinction between sex and gender is at the crux of a lot of the culture war and debates that are, that are taking place nowadays around um, trans issues um, with, you know, people who were seen to be more uh, pro-trans rights or non-binary rights focusing on the idea of gender as a sort of social construct which is like layered on top of um the physicality of, of, of the of the body of the sexed body and other people who are more resistant uh, either um sort of self-defined gender critical feminists or uh, um the broader anti-gender movement i think would include evangelical Christians and far-right governments and um, anti-abortion activists, uh, funders in, from the US also oppose this idea of gender. And we see it a lot uh, in Eastern Europe, but like I say, in the US and increasingly in the UK too. 
um, saying sex is what's real, gender is some kind of gender ideology is, is the term that's been used, the idea that um, all that hard work that actually second wave feminists ironically did in the 70s and 80s to say that um, your biology isn't your destiny and that the social roles of man, of man woman are, are sort of constructed um, is, is somehow a, a trick. Uh, yeah. For me, uh, distinguishing is, is difficult. And, that, you know, it is a socio-legal project, ultimately. It's not a philosophical uh, treatise, and it's not a um, biological uh, study. I am inspired by certain uh, biologists, but for me, the, it's very difficult to disentangle sex and gender in the UK. For example, especially in law, um, yeah. sex is what is registered um, in the uh, Births and Deaths uh, Registration Act um, when the child is born, and yet gender is what's recognised. So <laughs> there is a there, there's, it's often the two terms are uh, used interchangeably in UK law. And interestingly, in Danish, in the Danish language, the Danish term kern is actually, um, it means both sex and gender. Sometimes they specify in the parliamentary debates that I analyzed uh, things like um, they say bi biologis kern or uh, physic uh, kern, which is biological, physical, um, sex slash gender. And sometimes they say kern identity, which means like identity, gender. And uh, so there are ways in which you can clarify um, the concept, conceptual distinction, but often I don't think it's useful. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, there is a there is an extent to which uh, when people talk about biological sex, it's really hard to separate that from uh, sort of the um, the uh, confines of, of social gender and and vice versa. The two are so heavily uh, dependent upon one another. Yeah, that's super interesting to reflect upon um, and reflecting upon your book in this space of the cultures that, you know, we see in the media all the time. Um, it's fascinating. But I, I do think it relates to sort of my next question is in terms of how gender shapes power relations between legal subjects. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this in the context of your research um, and perhaps if you'd like to comment more broadly as well. Um, yeah. Uh, you mean gender in, 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 the, in the sense of like how it's inscribed in law and how that... Uh, yeah, I think how it's... Inscribed. Yeah, how gender is inscribed in law and how... Yes, exactly. And how it perpetuates inequalities. Um, and then also perhaps how gender as a sort of... Um, sort of so the concept of social gender also has the potential to influence power relations. Yeah, I mean, well, sort of theoretically, I'm quite inspired um, by uh, Judith Butler and others who argue that, you know, um, we all do gender in different ways. Um, I think that that is that sort of idea of gender performativity has become uh, widely uh, used and to some extent misunderstood there is uh, the rest of butler's work after uh, gender trouble stuff like bodies that matter highlights and focuses a lot on the way in which um that's much harder for some bodies than others uh and uh, this sort of feminist injunction that that cis men uh, non-trans men have pri a privilege and certain advantages over um 
well, cis women, but also others, I think uh, applies. And that's something I've tried to be sensitive to in the book. So, uh, yeah, things like unpaid labor that happens in different societies. Um, like historically, women have been treated as inferior to men and have faced barriers, which, which some of which maintain um, to this day. Uh, I think that the point at which I would depart from um, those sort of gender critical feminists is the idea that um, trans and non-binary people somehow um, also benefit from this male privilege. Um, that's not um, sort of that's not, that's not shown in the figures or the, the statistics around uh, trans people's um, high mortality rates, high unemployment rates, poor access to healthcare, poor access to housing, security, uh, low earnings, difficult health outcomes. Like there's a lots of ways at, at high rates of um, discrimination or, or um, propensity towards violence. And yeah, I'm paying, painting a bit of a stark picture here, but the idea that um, trans people somehow aren't discriminated on the basis of gender, I think is is misguided and easily uh, disproven, purely in the sense of identifying in law as well. You know, they do face different barriers than what cis people uh, face in terms of... Um, I'm a cis man and I identify as a man. Uh, I don't need any doctor to um, approve that for me. Um, so there are they are treated both in law and in medicine in the UK as exhibiting a pathology or an illness. They're pathologized uh, for doing gender in a slightly different way uh, to the cis gender peers. And that's something which, um, yeah, I think it's worth identifying, which has knock-on effects in terms of yeah, employment, access to healthcare, access to housing, yeah. Um, yeah, all of those kind of things, which have a material effect and uh, on trans people's lives and bodies. And so then sort of thinking about digging further into the implications um, in like this regulatory framework in law about the way transgender people's bodies and their lives are regulated, and sort of thinking about the research you did in Denmark and then the UK, I'm wondering, can you sort of comment on how gender is sort of realised and recognised, um, perhaps make a comparison between some jurisdictions? You've sort of touched on it before, but I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the lessons we can learn from like looking at the model in Denmark compared to say the UK and other states? Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I mean, I mean, the model, like I said, the, the easiest, I don't do a, a pure comparison in the book. I try and go with depth in the Danish uh, case so that people uh, outside of the UK get as much from the book as, as people inside it. Having said that, bearing in mind my background uh, as a British person who's worked primarily in, in UK uh, institutions, um, the, the, the main comparator is still the Gender Recognition Act 2000. In that, you have to have as, um, proof of the, this psychiatric diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So there is that element of, well, number one, being able to get that diagnosis, number two, being able to prove it, and there are ways in which um, there are various other sort of um, conditions in the Gender Recognition Act, which mean that it's a certain minority of trans people who are likely to be able to get that kind of recognition. Uh, and I also, from having spoken to lots of activists and trans people in the UK, know that a lot of trans people who maybe even could 
go through that process, choose not to, because it's more straightforward to change individual pieces of identification. That, that, that it makes no sense to go for the central um, central recognition, the legal recognition, which is supposed to have this knock-on effect. Because anyway, you still need to go through the process of changing your driver's license, changing your passport, changing etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And a lot of this is possible without a gender recognition certificate. Um, marriage is impossible, and there are certain things which make it harder if you. Um, uh, uh, when you die in terms of like um having things recorded on your death certificate although i saw recently some research which suggested that that would be possible for people trans people to have their identity recognized without a gender recognition certificate anyway there's a there's a bureaucracy and um that it's complicated and quite expensive and time consuming to go through the process for a lot of uh, british trans people who choose not to in denmark uh, making it like an internet-based system where you just self-declare your gender and then confirm this six months later is supposed to take some of that um those issues away and certainly a lot of the trans people who i interviewed um so i did interviews with some uh, uh, regulators and uh, people involved in the the uh, reform process but also a lot of trans people to ask about their personal experiences of the um of the change and a lot of them had sort of taken part in the um in the in the process of uh, the recognition process uh because removing these a lot of conditions and removing the need for expert approval uh, meant it wasn't seen as much more accessible uh, to trans people to change their legal gender at least although it didn't mean that there weren't problems that came after that or that the um other aspects of what you might call a uh, sort of gender transition uh were smoother on, on the basis of having had legal recognition. Yeah. So I just want to pick up on something you just mentioned. Um, you did a lot of like interviews for your book, which was actually really fascinating to read. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your methodology and the research that you actually, you know, how did you, uh, how was your sort of research grounded? I guess it's my question. Yeah, yeah. So um the, I, I sort of used this um, legal consciousness uh, methodology. Uh, the idea was I wanted to get a grounded, empirical uh, view of how these reforms were being experienced in practice. Uh, incidentally, you know, I went to Denmark thinking, perhaps quite naively, this is the, the most progressive model of um, recognition in Europe. Let's go and see how well it can be done. And then I'll come back to the UK and be like, oh, well, you know, you need to do it like this. You need to do it like that. And often Denmark does have quite an, a, a self-professed, um, but also a widely shared opinion, a reputation of being, you know, a sexually liberal uh, kind of social democratic country with uh, high welfare, high taxes. Often it's seen as part of these kind of Nordic uh, block of countries that offer a, a different route to um, sort, I guess, the sort of like bland neoliberalism that we've been having in the UK and um, since the seventies, and also in the US since probably much before that. Um, when I got there, the first <laughs> few trans people I met um, all told me what a nightmare it had been. So I had this uh, big uh, shift in my viewpoint in terms of 
uh, I told them, you know, I'd like to come and see how it's done and straight away saying, you know, even joking kind of thing. So that was a shift. And it, in a way that justified my methodology, mm-hmm. I think of trying to, rather than doing, say, a comparative study, which covered loads of different countries or even like any kind of like a desk-based analysis or yeah. doctrinal analysis of what the Danish law was, or I, I did do that work and I did uh, translate the parliamentary debate. So there was an element of doctrinal analysis in the book. However, the interviews and the empirical research is what is really where um, my main findings uh, is what my main findings rose out of. And focusing on um, the legal consciousness of trans people was my way of trying to work out, you know, how the law the law reforms register on an embodied level, um, what the impact the every the impact was on trans people's everyday lives as the fact that. They you know, now lived in the most uh, liberal uh, state in Europe for in terms of transgender uh, legal recognition, at least. Yeah, right. So I'm I'm not sure if you just answered this question, but I'll, I'll ask anyway and let me know. Um, but then my next question is, what surprised you most in doing this research? I mean, yeah, definitely that. That definitely this okay. the the arriving in Denmark and sort of having this straight away my hypothesis totally blown out of the water and um, the hypothesis that Denmark had, was doing things better and uh, doing things well. Uh, I've never been, uh, it was always meant to be a socio-legal PhD. My yeah. husband was uh, for socio-legal studies. That's what my PhD is in. So I've never been a like law first person, um, always been, uh, you know, identified as myself within that kind of body of, of law and society research and looking not just at what law says and then what the effects of that are, but having a having an idea that the the two that law and society are constantly intertwined and shaping one another. So I suppose I always thought I, I knew there would be issues <laughs> still ongoing in Denmark. What I didn't know was like how how much the uh, progressive legislation had been uh was part of the same reform package as some more regressive changes, I guess, if you want to use that framing. The healthcare system in Denmark was very unregulated before 2012. Um, and then a key point in the sort of timeline of, of trans issues in Denmark, trans rights, were, was then when a, a young trans man or maybe even trans boy, I think he was 15 at the time, had had his um, breasts removed Um for uh, on in the private healthcare system, he'd gone to the press. Uh, he'd gone to uh, newspaper, TV to say, "Oh, you know, I got this um, uh, uh, great um, treatment, and um, why shouldn't everyone else? You know, just because my parents were kind enough to pay for this surgery for me, why shouldn't other trans people have access to this? Young trans people, or uh, that? <laughs> I think." Probably he wouldn't mind me saying, and other trans people wouldn't mind me saying that that had backfired to some extent. There was a outrage, as you can imagine, with especially with the context of being under sixteen. Um, a lot of the culture wars is framed around protecting children at the moment in the UK and the US, and that, that happened there. It all kind of got mashed together, and in the end, the changes to the healthcare system in Denmark were to make it much more centralized and standardized the way in which you would gain access to uh, both surgeries and hormones even though a lot of people were mostly um 
discomforted by the fact that it was a surgery that this trans boy had uh, undergone. And for um, trans people of all ages, even though a lot of people who were reacting and and uh, Tobias uh, Raum, um, a, a sociologist in Denmark who's written about this, you know, he that's his point basically that but the effect was um, to include to make things difficult for all trans okay. people, even though uh, in the in the media it seemed like people's reactions were mostly against the age and um, the underage element of of this um, procedure. So yeah, so basically they tightened up all of the way in which trans people would access both hormones and surgeries, and there was a period where a lot of trans people were worried. The doctors that had been prescribing their hormone um, replacement treatments were, were were prohibited from doing so any longer. So, which you can imagine is like pretty uh, traumatic and also anxiety inducing for trans people to wonder if their medicine they're going to get access to their medicine or not. Uh, they were told they had to go to the central, the main uh, clinic in Copenhagen. Just one um, clinic would be able to approve access to healthcare treatments and um a lot of people had already been there and <laughs> didn't like it at all so we wouldn't go back or were very scared to go back um i talk about that being a sort of state monopoly um, for healthcare which doesn't persist to this day there's been some other clinics now approved elsewhere outside of copenhagen a couple at least um but i that's been since my empirical research has been over i'm not sure if their sort of way of of uh, prescribing hormones is more accessible than it was at the sexological clinic in Copenhagen. But yeah, the idea was as the law improved, the healthcare got, got at least restricted and, and from a lot of the trans people I spoke to much harder access to healthcare. And yeah, I had a great quote, which actually I didn't put in the book. It's in um, an article, Jurisdiction in Trans Health, which I published in the Journal of Law and Society from one of the trans people I interviewed who said, um, you know, the, the law is fine, but the access to healthcare got worse. And if anything, access to healthcare is more important than access to legal recognition for trans people. So I, that that was the surprise, I guess, that, that, that law, which, you know, as legal scholars, we sometimes think is the main way of protecting rights, uh, as that improved people's experience of their rights, uh, in particular healthcare rights. Uh, yeah. Uh, got got worse. That's a super interesting point. Thinking um, as a lawyer, you know, law is offered as a solution. It's a sort of rights-based legalism approach to protecting rights. But actually, you know, in this case, I think, well, it's it's not a good example, but it's a sort of, it's an example um, of how, you know, the centralised and sta- increased sort of centralised and standardised um, regulation of trans people actually was massively problematic so uh, and i think that's a really interesting lesson from your book and a really interesting takeaway um at least in this case so one point you sort of touched on a moment ago was this idea of legal embodiment and this is sort of the concept of legal embodiment is central to some of the research questions that you set out so wondering if we can sort of go through these a bit and talk about at least of legal embodiment. Do you um will power jurisdiction mobilize in the governance of legal embodiment? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this and how your book answers this. Yeah, so when when I was starting off, I was interested, like I say, in approaching 
the question from a kind of um, a perspective inspired by the work of people like Judith Butler who write about law and bodies or law and the body um, or at least people who've been inspired by her work have. But I came to this idea of legal embodiment um, actually through it. it it's been mostly um, fleshed out within uh, primarily UK-based uh, healthcare law literature. Um, and um, I basically use that as a way to try and encapsulate the power dynamic that's developed between trans people, law and medicine, primarily. Uh, it looks by focusing on embodiment rather than bodies or the body, you kind of took, you, you get more of this idea of the experience of, of, of trans people being important to that, um, to the analysis. Um, and yeah, I, I think the thing I added to, to the excellent work that had already been done on legal embodiment was to really focus on institutional aspects and dimensions of embodiment because I, I don't want, I didn't want to, I deliberately want to stop well short of accounting for the, the holistic complexity of trans embodiment being a scholar who's not a trans person. I felt much more comfortable limiting the book uh, to exploring the power dynamic. Yeah. Like I say, between law, trans people, medical professionals and how that's affected by re regulatory governance. So focusing not on uh, like say someone like Zoe Davy, um, in her brilliant book, recognizing transsexuals, she focuses on so many different aspects of trans, uh, embodiment, uh, sexual, uh, subjective, like there's lots of different relational aspects of embodiment to do with like how trans people, uh, aesthetics. So how that they, they, you know, uh, navigate their way through the world is kind of a Bourdieuian, um, sociology of trans, uh, embodiment. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, for various reasons, like I laid out earlier, I wanted to focus primarily on the interaction between trans people and the law, but with this kind of legally pluralistic uh, understanding that law isn't just civil law. It's not just what's written down in legislation. It also, like, the way that the doctors treat trans people is legally, um, as a legal basis. It's permitted uh, the amount of discretion that healthcare professionals in Denmark, in the UK, in US, etc., have over trans people, the amount of control they have over uh, the direction of trans people's um, destinies <laughs> uh, is, is legally um, uh, ascribed. And, um, uh, you know, the idea that, that it's not legal because it's health is something that I really wanted to challenge because, you know, there is medical law, there's healthcare law, um, and you know, in many different contexts, uh, you can think about um, disability studies, disability law, other areas where rights, uh, human rights, are completely um, uh, circumvented by uh, medical discretion in in certain contexts. And uh, the idea that you know you have a right uh, to to access healthcare, um, and then the doctor decides, okay, but not for this reason, not now or not for you. It, you know, there's always ways in which that can be limited. And what you've just said, I think, relates to one of your other research questions, this idea of looking at the intersection of the experiences of trans people, law and medicine. And I, w I want to ask you, so then 
again, turning back to a research question, but so then how are jurisdictional boundaries between institutions such as law and medicine affected by self-declaration? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was this was a great um, uh, method of an or mode of analysis for me looking at jurisdiction. It really helped me understand what was going on. It was actually inspired by uh, Mariana Valverde's work um, on uh, the big book, I guess, where she talks about jurisdiction is the Chronotypes of Law. But um, I actually saw her do a talk at Leeds um, way before that book came out, and just at the early in the early days of my PhD, and I'd just been thinking of like, how am I going to conceptualize mm-hmm. sort of uh, professional boundaries between law and medicine? And she came in and she talked about these different um, kind of uh, ideas that she'd been having and jurisdiction was one of them and she's written little bits uh, outside of that book on it but the idea is the way in which jurisdiction is the thing that holds these different sometimes contradictory uh, logics or uh, uh, ideologies together is where law says okay h- here is the limit to where we impinge upon uh, medical discretion and uh, or vice versa, you know, uh, here's here's the point at which medical discretion stops and and law takes over. And there are many instances in which um, you know what the doctor doesn't know best. Uh, in it, otherwise, there wouldn't be a whole field of medical or healthcare law. And um, yeah, I sort of was focused. Yeah, like I say, both in this article, Jurisdiction in Trans Health, I wrote before the book, but also within the book itself, at looking at how jurisdiction sort of um, greases the cogs of the legal system and just keeps things moving along, uh, means that the doctors know what their limits are of their of their powers. And um, also, yeah, the, the way in which it was really clear in the Danish parliamentary debates the points at which the politicians decided, okay, well, we know trans rights are important, or at least we have to say they are, and uh, we can believe that. But then at the point at which uh, it becomes a health issue, well, we're no experts on that at all. And the idea that they um, that, that would be fine and, or would be <laughs> filtered down okay into trans people's lives who, you know, a couple of people said to me, you know, it's fine for me to change my legal gender to female, but when I look like I do and uh, uh, I go around with this body that I don't feel is right for me, um, it's not going to make things any easier for me in terms of accessing employment or accessing healthcare or accessing housing or not facing a discrimination in the streets. And the idea that there's no attempt to kind of see things from the bottom um, the everyday um, <laughs> the legal subjects uh, viewpoint uh, that doesn't trouble jurisdiction because it's I think the point of jurisdiction primarily like I say is just to make sure um, the status quo is in some way maintained or at least the smooth functioning of the system I think that's a not accidental point other day is is maintained and that's really interesting and I said I want to delve a little bit more into this point. Um, the idea, you know, of the politicians sort of, have, you know, being driven by policy and saying, as you just said, you know, trans rights are really important, but actually then sort of pulling back and say, but we're not going to sort of in- encroach upon professionals in medicine. We're not going to tell them what to do. I'm interested to know then in terms of policy, 
you know, is there sort of like discretion granted to um, medical decision makers and doctors that sort of almost takes power away from trans people in this space? Or is this sort of, you know, is is the, has the regulatory system sort of stepped in or improved in terms of um, because of self-recognition um, or is it is there's just a sort of shift in discretion? Mm-hmm. Well, I did a couple of interviews with doctors mm. who'd been involved in the at least the legislative process or or the drafting of the new medical guidelines which came in Denmark, which centralised um, the the system. Um, they said to me, I said to them, you know, what would you think if a trans person came in and said, you know, I've got my legal gender recognition app? I was like, would that influence your decision whether or not they had um, gender dysphoria? And they said to me, well, you know, it's part of the picture. But, you know, your rights out there, they don't necessarily apply in the clinic here. Right. Danish people speak very bluntly. It was great for interviews. <laughs> very honest about what, they, what their thoughts are, uh, generally speaking. Um, and I think that was interesting in terms of like seeing, you know, I, th- I think they said, you know, the idea behind that was that if you change your legal gender and it's a fact to change it back, that that would be seen as a uh, positive in terms of you getting a diagnosis because it proved your sort of commitment in some that it wasn't just a, a fad which is like a big big fear of the doctors and people who were wary of um, granting too easy access to hormones or um, uh, treatments um but uh but still the the idea that uh there's different viewpoints on the from the sort of health uh, sociology side uh, Ruth Pierce and Zoe Davy have both written about the way in which both the uh, the diagnoses in in um, in the uh, the DSM and the ICD themselves are discriminatory uh, the way in which they uh, describe gender dysphoria or gender incongruence is that you know there's things to look for that look for there's like a checklist so the the way in which you are trans is is kind of prescribed or uh, circumscribed in that in that um that those diagnostic manuals so the, the diagnoses themselves are part of the problem the way in which they're formulated in these handbooks for psychiatrists or other um, medical professionals uh and i think there's definitely something in that the thing is I also think, I mean, I don't have a great experience of the uh, healthcare system in the UK uh, for tra- for trans people, but I've written and uh, Ruth Pierce, my former colleague, you know, we've talked a lot about it. Her great book, Understanding Trans Health, lays out the UK system fantastically, I think. Um, I, I think the way in which the, the main difference, if I wanted to be very uh, sort of uh, <laughs> reductive, is, is that in the UK, the the doctors some doctors um start from the point of you know using these checklists as a kind of guide when the trans person comes in they sort of see how many of these did they fit with and you know is there anything that indicates to me that they aren't a trans person whereas the way i think historically it's been done in denmark and it might be changing now uh is more to see do you tick all of these boxes so it's the starting point was a little bit more um restrictive i would say they they they're really they were really keen and one of the doctors said this to me our, our job is to find people for this to, to whom this won't be right um so rather than seeing themselves as kind of healthcare providers to facilitate access to healthcare for trans people it was about 
weeding out the, the main focus is weeding out the people who aren't really trans and that includes uh in, you know contrary to sort of the um arguments put forward in the culture wars that you know oh it's all non-binary now you know you can't be non-binary in if you follow a strict <laughs> literal yeah. textual understanding of, of gender dysphoria because it's specifies you know a strong identification with the other gender to the one assigned at birth it doesn't say another gender to the one assigned at birth uh, so yeah so some, something as simple as being non-binary maybe in the uk that's a bit more accepted nowadays but certainly in denmark uh i didn't think it it didn't come across as something that was was being facilitated in my interviews with doctors and in my interviews with non-binary people uh they said to me one of them said to me, you know, oh, I'd really, this was a, a non-binary person who'd been assigned female gender at birth, said to me, oh, I, I keep cutting my hair short whilst I'm going to the sexological clinic. I don't want to confuse them. I'd love to grow my hair long, but I want them to believe that I want to be a man, even though they did, they just didn't want to be a woman. So it was, uh, there's ways in which trans people are really non-binary people. Either they just don't go to these clinics because they just think it's not, I'm not, I'm going to get rejected. I won't get access to hormones. I try it best to save up and try and do it privately or, or overseas. Uh, or they just hide their true gender expression and just fit the narrative, the sort of tired old narrative of this is what a trans person is and how they should be. And sometimes the doctors are, are happy to go along with that kind of, um, with, with supporting that kind of transition. And so this is perhaps an interesting point to talk about. One of your chapters is titled Visibility and Progress in Trans Rights. And it is really a sort of really big topic that plays into culture wars. I want to think about, you know, firstly, what is visibility in relation to trans rights? And then how do we measure progress in this space? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is one of the chapters in the book. There's a couple towards the end of the book that I think uh, we'll uh, have sort of controversial arguments mm -hmm. in uh, this one and, and the next chapter as well. But in this one, I think I was a bit wary of getting too much into telling trans people uh, or trans activists what they should be arguing for. I didn't really want to yeah. do that so much. But there is a sort of basic understanding that uh, the more we see of trans people, uh, the more we'll accept them. And I think... It's been partially true in the case of um, uh, gay and lesbian uh, people. Um, but, I mean, there's plenty of sort of counterexamples you could cite in that context too. In the UK, you know, we had a, a trans woman win Big Brother. And then we, you know, it, the more that trans people were sort of seen in everyday um, cultural contexts, it seemed to be that they were being more accepted. Uh, but we've got this huge backlash now. Uh, and I sort of started the chapter by saying, you know, when, when trans people uh, have never been more visible in the US and UK, um, the, the backlash has been, and the moral panic has been <laughs> huge. And um, in Denmark, when the, the, one of my points in this chapter was that they weren't very visible at the time of the law changing, so it was possible to pass uh, progressive uh, law reform uh, without very visible trans people featuring in the public consciousness and the instances in which they were visible in the Caspian case this the case of this 15 year old uh, boy who had his breast uh, removed uh, that probably led to some of the uh, 
issues, the drawbacks with, with the reform. So with this tightening of the medical uh, process. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my what I was trying to say in the chapter was that you can pass law without without being super visible and that um, visibility doesn't necessarily equate with progress. In this section of the chapter, I was quite uh, inspired by uh, Lauren Belant's theory of uh, optimism um, and also um, trying to sort of see how uh, this idea of visibility and progress and rights and development and enlightenment, those some of those liberal ideas can be problematized in, in practice when you look at how law works. Um, Belant is writing mostly about the US context where you know you have under Obama, gay rights and um, also um, uh, a change and a shift in, in their kind of imperial warfare. So uh, looking at how she talks about, you know, uh, two steps forward, one step back, you know, being kind of model of, of, of government. And that really spoke to the research I did in Denmark in terms of this, this idea of you change the law, the civil law one way and take a huge step back with the access to, to healthcare. And uh, yeah, I'm asking, is there a different way in which it could um, which it could work? I use some of Eve Sedgwick's work, um, looking at how uh, ignorance and opacity uh, can compete with knowledge about, uh, about a group in order to uh, change how they're understood. And then I also, there's a, a, a German a trans artist, Mika um, Kirschenbauer, who talks about need to embrace opacity they need to grant rights and recognition on the basis of not understanding what a person is all about and like i mean it's not something that i threshed out in the book as a um, as a model for reform and more just an idea of like what would law reform look like without um means testing and without diagnostic lists and if we just could say you know yeah this group we don't know uh, we don't really understand their way of life, their culture, their history, but we're still willing to <laughs> uh, give them the same rights that other people have. It, maybe that's quite <laughs> utopian in a, in a, like I say, in a um, chapter that's kind of quite pessimistic. But yeah, that was that was the idea and the context of, of the change in which trans people have been viewed. When I started writing in 2012 on trans issues people would ask me, oh, what's that even about, you know, when I would mention it, <laughs> uh, like any kind of work uh, event or a social yeah. event. And and now everybody has a viewpoint on mm. what trans rights have gone too far or um, <laughs> the backlash is really the end of the world. And I think in this case, um, you're sort of seeing that visibility isn't a guarantor of, of progress in the UK. Um, and also, what would even progress look like in this context? Yeah. Is it all just about giving more rights or are those all the material factors, like I mentioned before, I keep saying healthcare, employment, housing, these kind of, um, these kind of uh, maybe more important aspects. Trans rights aren't often granted in those areas and it, in the places where they are, that doesn't always <laughs> translate into um, material equality or very rarely does. So yeah perhaps the right not to be understood that's uh, an edward glissant quote is is potentially yeah just point points of direction and away from this idea that people should have to come out and explain themselves all the time in order to be granted rights yeah i think that's a really important point um you know 
cisgender people don't don't have to explain themselves you know like it's exclusively for minorities who are marked out as sort of different or other having to jump through these hoops and explain constantly um who they are and yet as you just said you know um everyone now you open a newspaper you see on tv everyone has an opinion on trans people and whether it's gone too far and whether the rights are being granted too much um notwithstanding you know access to resources um all that you just mentioned are you know very limited um and that i think changes the lived experience for trans people and minorities i want to talk now the next chapter is about vulnerability in medical institutions and you introduce vulnerability theory here i'm wondering if you can sort of apply this in the context of your book and think about how it might apply a little bit in practice as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. This is like I hinted before, another potentially controversial argument is made in this in this chapter. The idea that the concentration of power within these medical institutions isn't a sign. Uh, my argument isn't is that it isn't a sign of their flourishing or their uh omnipotence in terms of over trans people and trans rights i actually thought by by integrating a kind of vulnerability perspective that in the wider context of, of cuts to public healthcare institutions and also you say on sort of attack from law in terms of you know rise in terms of the risk of, of malpractice or there's lots of kind of ways in which um medics are kind of um wary of, of doing anything sort of politically uh, interesting um yeah. that that you could basically see the sort of expanding jurisdiction of the medical um jurisdiction um medical professional discretion in denmark as a kind of response to their vulnerability basically yeah. that the danish government made them uh sort of lay out some some rules and some, and and centralize and standardize the way trans people were given access to hormones had been very informal before they'd been it's a small country Denmark it's only about five million people and basically a lot of the, the trans people I spoke to knew of a couple of psychiatrists who were very open to prescribing hormones to trans people on a pretty much informed consent basis and they were prohibited from doing that any longer and things like justification of increasing expertise and uh, professionalism, uh, professionalism, increased transparency and this kind of thing came to the fore. And I, I've looked at the way in which the medical regulators, the Danish Health and Medicines Authority was also under, ta- under attack for a couple of different scandals at the same time. And my argument basically is that if you look at the position of healthcare um, within Denmark, and you can equally apply this in other states that where where healthcare is underfunded or um, threatened by politics or law, like I say, um, that, that that it's a kind of a consolidation, it's a retreat to make the law as, as strict as it was. This is a slightly uh, what would you call it, like new way of applying vulnerability that Martha Feynman, the uh, mother of vulnerability theory, has. Uh, mooted without going too much into most of her work on vulnerability is to do with the vulnerability of the human subject and um she sort of takes a kind of ontological uh, perspective on like all of us being one injury away from dependency irrespective of our wealth or status and looks at how um 
yeah, that there's no point positioning some people as particularly vulnerable and others as invulnerable. We're all vulnerable. Uh, however, she has talked about her uh, in in more recent works the vulnerability of institutions. Others have taken this um, and and run with it a little bit. Um, Stu Marvel, a former colleague, has talked about uh, plural parentage and you know looking at how in within marriage uh, that could be a, a, a vulnerable institution. Uh, uh, and yeah, there's the and Mitch Travis, our, um, my, my colleague, he's also talked about the vulnerability of heterosexuality. What I wanted to look at is like the vulnerability of these medical institutions as their the jurisdiction was expanded. How could we understand their response as essentially defensive, and what would a better uh, outcome be to than to sort of attack them? Uh, I was actually interviewed by um, the Danish media briefly whilst I was in Denmark, and uh, they didn't use any of my interview. I think I was way too uh, <laughs> I was way too circumscribed. Shame. At one point, they said to me, "Would you say that this is a case of the Danish government uh, centering the uh, rights of doctors over the individual, and I, or the needs of the state over the individual?" And I just thought, you know, I can't as a good conscience as a British person go to Denmark and more kind of collective society and start attacking the state for not of giving enough freedom to the individual. And um, I talked to some of the trans activists that I've been interviewing there about this and said, you know, autonomy and individualism is one answer to um, restrictive regulation from the state. But for my own sort of theoretical perspectives and also political um, tendencies, I don't think the individual is is the answer, especially like not a kind of neoliberal, empowered, self-sufficient individual, which um, we so often see being kind of trumpeted as the answer. So, yeah, so I, I thought vulnerability theory maybe offers something else. You could think of a way in which the healthcare system could be more supported by the state, the way in which it, it, if it was properly funded and, and regulated in a way which allowed discretion in the right areas, there could be innovative healthcare being provided broader access um, and like looked at ways in which not in detail again the, the point of the book was never to provide a roadmap for how trans rights should be granted but to look you know at how it might be more effectively um, it, well what's going wrong currently and, and then maybe a little taste of how it might be done differently towards the end of each chapter. I think that's really important isn't it just um, you know in terms of thinking about law reform and granting rights and empowering individuals especially to sort of live out their own conception of the good life you know we can say well yes the current regulatory framework has progressed on from what it used to be um but it you know we can still say well there are problems and it applies problematically and that doesn't mean we just sort of stop and say well this this change didn't work this reform didn't work let's go back to the old model or you know I think it's really important and I think this is a really important lesson from your book that, you know, that there needs to be sort of continual progress and continuing to question, you know, how um, how do people get to live as they are and sort of as themselves. I just want to turn finally to the last chapter in your book on governmentality and managing trans health. So you offer, offer a governmentality analysis, governmentality analysis of the legal reform in Denmark. What can be sort of 
you know, what can we take away from this analysis of governmentality and managing trans health? Yeah, um, I was sort of, again, sort of inspired by people like Dean Spade, um, uh, Emily Grabham, uh, uh, Sarah Lamble, who people who've written about, um, yeah, governmentality and looked at how the state benefits from either <laughs> granting trans rights or not or denying them. And I wanted to kind of make a broader point in terms of like how how sort of the Dan- Danish state uh, sort of presents it, its um, the legal subjects in which it's supposed to be, pro- you know, providing reforms for. And I looked a bit in terms of, it didn't take long to look through the history of the kind of medical law. There was like little snippets of um, uh, terms which I could look back into different Danish um, like medical laws. And yeah, it... The, there was an easy line to draw between the way in which diagnosis is currently defined and has previously been defined and like basically Danish eugenics as it's been used historically. So um, uh, the, there was terms which like, um, which yeah, it's hard to translate, but basically um, the, the rule, the, the rule was, you know, you had to be, uh, I think direct translation is like surgically castrated previously in order to um, gain access to legal recognition, and still that is kind of presented as the um, the correct end point of any kind of medical um, transition for trans people. That eventually they will have a, a surgery which prevents them from procreating. And I looked at how that had been used in history to police. Uh, troublesome female sexuality, uh, 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 people who would um, have multiple sexual partners outside of marriage, um, maybe uh, got pregnant outside of wedlock, and I kind of drew a link, basically, again, to to sort of try and understand this history of um, uh, legal violence against women, if you like, and to draw parallels between that and the current treatment of trans and non-binary um, people. And what I sort of, the point I made, drawing on a bit the work of uh, Susan Stryker and others, was that the, the way in which um, trans people are now included um, still fits this overall lens of like, what is a productive citizen who uh, is welcome within the Danish state? Nowadays, uh, they the, the Danish uh healthcare system is very wary of um, giving access to to these um, treatments which might make a, a trans person uh, sterile because my well my argument is you know there's there's an element of um, natal politics in the sense that they want to ensure that trans that, that, that Danish native if you like Danish people can pro- pro- procreate at a time when the um, average age in Denmark is uh, increasing and the borders and uh, uh, are being um, hardened, like elsewhere in Europe, but in a specifically Danish way, they, you know, they're really wary of getting having too many migrants uh, coming into Denmark and being reliant upon them to maintain this like highly successful historically Danish welfare state. So, so yeah, it was it was trying to broaden out the discussion. So in a way which would be relevant to try and understand the law, which would be interesting for people who aren't necessarily uh, working in the field of trans rights and to look at kind of 
how uh, the myth of liberal Denmark, that's a, another quote from Tobias Round, is, uh, is a myth and how it's being kind of uh, what the dark underbelly of Denmark's kind of progressive uh, self reputation or, you know, sort of self maintained reputation is. Uh, and then, yeah, I try, I end concluding by sort of talking about the consequences of that kind of analysis for trans legal studies, feminist legal studies, also social legal studies more broadly, which is a kind of uh, complicated conclusion to get to. But the idea is to sort of, in your projects, is not just to look at what law is doing or or how even the sort of socio-legal perspective of how it's being experienced in an embodied level, but also about jumping back up to the kind of structural level and trying to see what kind of regulatory picture is, is do, do we have here on a broader level and how far uh, law reform is even the answer, how far it should be the target of uh, trans rights and trans activists uh, at this point in time. In the visibility chapter, I suggested it would be a long time in the UK um, for until it's a, a good a law law reform is a, is a good idea for trans people because um, of the backlashes we're seeing. I thought uh, in Scotland they would get this change through, but uh, we've seen that that's been uh, vetoed. And um, yeah, but on top of that, um, what might be lost by even a progressive uh uh, law reform, a successful law reform project, what comes with it, who might be missed out, and you know whether um, whether you know the, the law, law should be centered in in our activism and in our demands from the state, or if there's a more direct way to potentially to um, improve uh, material conditions. The trans people and others um you know the ways in which they get through their everyday lives can you make that easier without granting them a new passport which you know, not everyone can afford not everyone needs if you if you can't afford to go on a foreign holiday what, what use is a passport for you right yeah and actually i found your book in that sense um really relevant and broadly applicable i mean i don't work in this space but you know thinking about the protection of rights um in a sort of broader socio-legal space, I think it's really important and it's your book is really easily transferable and translatable um, to different contexts. So I, I would suggest it. it's it's really helpful and a really useful book in that sense as well. Um, just to sort of bring it all together, I'm just wondering, do you have any key takeaways from the book? Hmm. Uh, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, those ones that I've said in terms of like uh, not just reading what the law uh, is as it's written down and assuming that that is going to tell us um, what the um, reality of the, of the law reform project is on a grounded, everyday, experienced, legally embodied level. Um, <clears throat> focusing on how uh, professionals and different institutions are regulated and what the interplay between uh, the professions uh, is. So in this case, it was it was law and medicine in my um, in my work, but there's lots of other ways in which professions are drawn in to uh, law reform projects and granted a sort of or more of a carte blanche or, or or discretion to regulate in a way which can be highly uh, problematic for the people who are supposed to benefit from legal changes. And 
yeah, then I guess about focusing, like I say, on the kind of broader political trends and seeing where our research fits into into that. And, and I, think, I guess all of these are targeted to some extent at legal scholars or socio-legal scholars specifically, but I also think uh, trans rights activism, feminist activism, which we must remember, you know, those two aren't <laughs> mutually exclusive. There are still plenty of intersections uh, between those two groups. Uh, and yeah, maybe people who are interested in just human rights and more broadly, um, that, that like there are demands for political nuance and uh, awareness and uh, the way things are going uh, broadly. You know, there's a lot, a lot written which is generalizing on that level too, right? In terms of political shifts in Europe and beyond. But it is important to do some thinking around that. Like, how does my work fit into these? broader political patterns and arrangements and and like frames like um yeah uh jurisdiction uh legal embodiment visibility vulnerability governmentality these are all concepts which i've used to try and help me do that it's not for the sake of it and none of those uh concepts or frameworks or heuristics that you know i think are worth well, they're, they're all great, but it's not about looking at them for the sake of it. It was about like how can they help me understand what's going on in Denmark and how that might apply in the UK and elsewhere, and you know what might we learn from that on a broader level about law, law reform, and law in society. Yeah, and it is really a great book, and it is um, yeah, it will be really useful to so many different scholars, um, and even I think perhaps policymakers and practitioners. I think it's it's really important. So, Chris, I've taken up a lot of your time now, but just before we go, can I just ask you, what are you working on now? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm starting a new project at the moment with my colleague, uh, Josh Warburton, and oh, cool. we're, it's a bit of a shift, actually. We're looking still in the area of like health law and regulation of health law, but we're working on a project which is about uh, regulation of wearable um, devices, so like fitness bands or smartwatches, and in particular, how they're being utilized in the UK National Health Service. So it's still using some of the same kind of, uh, still looking at sort of legal embodiment, governmentality, if you like. There's a lot of stuff about surveillance capitalism that we've been using to try and understand what the utility of these devices is to the healthcare system. And also, yeah, what the impact, the subjective impact on the embodied level is for patients who are being advised by their doctors, whatever you considered wearing this or, or that. And uh, yeah, maybe it's a little bit more of a niche project, but it's something that I'm interested in and uh, yeah, um, we'll be working on at least uh, for the next few years. So I think, and just, uh, yeah, in the book, I think I felt like I said everything I wanted to say for now about yeah. uh, trans feminism and trans legal studies and uh, it may be that I come back to it in the future, but yeah, it's looking at something a little different and seeing, um, again, what is um, law uh, permitting uh, the healthcare system to do? And also with the view of that vulnerability, like how are, how are manufacturers or um, data collectors um, benefiting and in what ways, what the impact of that for, for a public healthcare system that we have here in the UK? Yeah, no, that sounds fun. Fascinating. And actually, I, I don't, from my perspective, I don't think it sounds niche at all. I've got, you know, three kids and I, you know, I think about the implications of 
young people going around permanently connected to a device that's tracking everything they do. So yeah, I think it, it sounds very, very relevant at the moment. So I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. So just to wrap up, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking to Dr. Chris Dietz about his book, Self-Declaration in the Legal Recognition of Gender. It was published by Rootledge 2023. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure.